This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and it's Saturday at 9 in the morning, so here we are to talk with you about the markets and the economy, and hopefully give you some insights into what's been going on this last week, which was, uh, I guess every week they've been giving us some fun stuff to talk about. Well, uh, as I like to do, let's start with the uh, data dump, uh, and then we'll go from there. Yesterday, the Dow closed, it, they were all over the place yesterday, but uh, the Dow closed uh, down 532 points, that was 1.4%, at 35,365. S&P off 1% at 4620. The Nasdaq unchanged on the day, uh, though it was lower for the week, it was at 15,169. Russell 2000 ended at 2175. Gold settled at $1,812 an ounce. Silver at $2,258 an ounce. Uh, crude at $7,090 a barrel. A 10-year Treasury bid at 1.41%. And soft white wheat quoted at $1,071 a bushel. Now, a couple very important historical notes that have nothing to do with the market. On the 16th of December, a mere 248 years ago, some colonists uh, decided to have a tea party and snuck onto some British ships in Boston and threw 350 barrels of said material into the harbor. <laughs> I wonder if they got enough lemon and sugar to make it worth drinking. Um, and then on the 17th, just uh, yesterday in 1903, the airplane age was born. At 10.35, Orville Wright took off flew 10 feet above the ground for about 120 feet and 12 seconds. Kind of hard to imagine in today's world, isn't it? But we started somewhere, and that's what we did with the markets as well. Now, uh, the market will be closed Friday uh, for Christmas Eve. Uh, Wednesday, we'll get the uh, third quarter GDP report and uh, some other personal income and spending numbers, but not too much data. A lot of folks are all going to be gone for the holidays. And it looks like, uh, based on yesterday, I think it was a kind of a, a Christmas present when everything was marked down for quick sale. You know, we had program trading, we have the ongoing tax loss selling, uh, just a combination of things. Um, and again, nothing fundamental uh, changed except uh, prices, and that's not fundamental. So, let's see here. What did happen yesterday, however was that uh, we had what's known as quadruple witching hour. Now, what that means in American is, is that we had stock options, stock index options, stock futures, and index futures all expire on the same day. And that happens quarterly, I believe. And uh, so it tends to have extra volatility, which again, we saw in spades yesterday. So that was part of the reason the markets were all over the place. But um, I think uh, kind of endemic of what's going on in the markets, we saw Microsoft drop again Friday. It's down 5.5% for the week. Alphabet, Apple, each down 4% for the week. And I can guarantee you, and that's against the law to say in my business almost, but that traders going to, excuse me, trading is going to be pretty choppy for the rest of the year because... Again, with few people around, volumes are going to be light, uh, going to be kind of knee-jerk responses to whatever headlines fly across. So um, I wouldn't put too much uh, 
credence into the data that we see next week. Now, in the midst of all this carrying on this last week with again the volatility and yesterday closing lower and all that, I want to reiterate that everything, the three major indices are still up nicely for the year. And this is as of yesterday. The Dow is still up 16%, S&P up 23%, and the NASDAQ up over 18%. But please note this. What a market does in any one year tells you nothing about what to expect in the next year. So, you know, the old uh, line, past performance doesn't guarantee future results. Yeah, well, that's definitely what we're seeing here. So, you know, and year to date, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, no surprise, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, and NVIDIA are the top five returning contributors year to date. And 35% of the return in the S&P, as, this as of the 9th of December, so it's probably still pretty good data, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, is from those five stocks. So uh, when it, the biggest names have the biggest returns, if you're a stock picker, it's kind of hard to outperform if you don't have those folks hidden away in your portfolio somewhere. You know, Google and Microsoft are up 67%, 51% year-to-date. And again, this is after these drops this week. So if you're managing a portfolio and the names aren't in them, well, as I say, kind of good luck. And even though the surface of the stock market appears fairly calm, the undercurrents uh, that have been going on for some time now are quite dramatic. It's like that duck, you know, going across the pond and he looks like he's just moving along, but underneath the water his feet are going about 400 miles an hour. That's what's been going on. Um, like Thursday, uh, we had... the. That's where it kind of started. Big struggles for some of the large tech names. Apple was down 4%. AMD, NVIDIA, both down a ton. Adobe went down after their guidance came in less than expected. As an aside, you see these... Remember we've talked how when things go up or down, a lot of it doesn't have to do with the absolute number, but it has to do with were those results better or worse than expected. Now, this is these analysts from whom... They determine who's better or worse than, and I don't know who died and left those guys in charge, but uh, <laughs> that that's where those better and worse than expected numbers come from. So take them with a grain of salt. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, the uh, Jim Paulson, he's chief investment strategist at Luthold, he had this to say, and I think it was pretty spot on. As the Federal Reserve turns more hawkish and expectations for higher interest rates rise, Investors are lowering their exposure to growth stocks. He says typically growth stocks exhibit what he calls a higher duration compared to value stocks because a higher proportion of their cash flows will be received in the more distant future, unquote. Now, trying to translate that a little bit, it means that these stocks are more subject to changes in interest rates than uh, perhaps some other uh, more traditional shares are. And so uh, that's one of the reasons that they're being beaten up so badly is because as interest rates rise, it tends to uh, diminish the value of some of their earnings out into the future. Now, uh, and again, on Thursday, remember I said that's when all these tech stocks got beat up, and the broader stock market was lower simply because of guilt by association. Eight of the S&P 500's 11 sectors were gained. They had gains. 
So you can see the influence of techs on the market. Uh, you know, the riskier stocks have been feeling the most pain. The stable stocks are doing okay. You know, again, as we've talked, the market appears to be in a leadership rotation from high growth into other areas such as consumer staples. Now, consumer staples are, strangely enough, essential products used by consumers. So food, beverages, household goods, uh, hygiene products, uh, alcohol, tobacco, the stuff you quote-unquote can't live without, right? That's what a defensive consumer staple is all about. And further, to kind of reinforce this rotation going on, the S&P 500 Low Vol Index, I know you know that one well, has beaten the S&P High Beta Index for the last six days in a row. Now, since November, the low volume index is up five and a quarter percent, the high beta down eight and three quarters percent. That's a pretty big jump for such a short period of time. And that's not just by chance. That's a direct result of the Fed's policy changes. And that's why these uh, so-called defensive stocks are starting to look better. Now, already this year, we've had more than one rotation, but they've all flamed out, and this one may not. Now, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to... Uh, kind of segue into the economic, oh wait, 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 but wait, there's more. <laughs> this is a good story you can use for your uh, holiday parties. If you had invested $10,000 in Apple, you know, one of these uh, kind of, if you had, now on June 6, 1983, that's if you put the 10000 in that, by April 17, 2003, 20 years later, you'd be sitting on $8,400. That's less. Oh, yes, it is. And I get a lot of people tell me, that can't be right. Or maybe I didn't factor in stock splits. Nope, those numbers are correct. Anyway, we were talking about Apple. You say, Jeepers, how did it go? You know, it's worth all the money in the world now, supposedly. And uh, yet, for 20 years, it underperformed rather handily. Now, that's 20 years, okay? It was not an overnight dump. See, it's almost... Apple is worth almost $3 trillion. So it didn't do much for nearly 20 years. Now, <laughs> so even if you're right about a particular stock, you can get the timing all wrong. I don't mean that you have to wait 20 years to find that out, but understand that. You know, keep your losses short and your gains long. That's kind of a good trading technique. But it even took some time few years, I think, after, uh, what's his name, Steve Jobs came back to Apple for to turn it around. And so this tells you that companies are always changing, they're dynamic, sometimes for the better, sometimes not so much. Oh, by the way, had you had the fortitude to hang in there, this is where the good part comes for these uh, Christmas party stories, had you had the fortitude to hang on on that $10,000 investment, um, it's now worth $6.2 million. Now, my math says that's more. So, that was a good thing. So as long as you stay with quality, stick it, stay with it, you'll probably be rewarded. Now, I think we need to talk about the federales. Those guys uh, were pretty busy this week, and uh, people were definitely waiting to hear what they had to say. Well, on Wednesday, they said it. They described their uh, goal of inflation to be moderately exceeding their 2% target as being met. 
I'd say that's pretty accurate. They also said they would keep their the interest rates near zero until they were satisfied that the labor market conditions were consistent with maximum employment. See, that's one, that's their two jobs. They got to fight inflation and keep the labor situation under control. Now, in addition, the Fed's announced that they'd be winding down their asset purchases. That's what the tapering is. They're going to be doing it at a faster pace. Uh, even though there's inflation and multiple interest rates on the way next year. They were doing, let's see, $90 billion a month. Uh, now they're going to be starting in January at 60 So it's still not exactly lunch money, but it's definitely less. Now, I believe that quantitative easing, QE, wasn't and isn't inflation fuel to begin with. But even if you disagree, ask yourself this question. If the Fed does slow these bond purchases and or interest rate hikes, how does that in turn boost semiconductor production, which would then ease pressure on car prices? How would it boost wind power in Europe so they can get out from under their natural gas and oil issues? Well, <laughs> it won't uh, in either case. I believe that um, the present issues are now on the supply side and not tied to the inflationary Fed policy. And while we have no reason to think either dialing back the quantitative easing or hiking interest rates threatened this bull market, we also think they're unlikely to slow the climb of the consumer price index, so they likely will continue to rise incrementally. Now, accomplishing this is going to take something a little more complex. That's scratch that. Something more complex. And that's the forces of the market. High and rising prices, in certain categories, encourage more production to meet the increased demand. And as that production goes up and the demand is met, it would follow that the prices would drop because there's a adequate demand, perhaps more, excuse me, adequate supply to meet the demand. Well, that's what it says in the school books anyway. So this should ultimately cool inflation. Not eliminated, it's not going to be eliminated, but cool it, reduce it. Now, we're already seeing this in increasing energy production and semiconductor investments. There's these great, huge semiconductor plants being built around the country at Jeepers. It's, they're just huge. And it may take a little time, but in our view, patience, while the market forces work, is definitely the path to slowing inflation, not Fed policy shifts. Now, John Williams is president of the New York Fed. That's considered perhaps like the second most powerful position after the chairman of the Fed. Well, Mr. Williams had this to say, I'm going into next year feeling like the baseline outlook is a very good one, apparently for the economy, I take it. But he goes on to say, therefore, actually raising interest rates would be a sign of positive development in terms of where we are in the economic cycle. A gentleman named Mike Lowengart, he's an investment strategist at E-Trade, add this to add, he said, while the three-rate hikes projected for next year uh, likely raise more than a few eyebrows, and by the way, these interest rate increment jumps are like in one quarter of 1% more often than not. So you're not talking about going from 2 to 5 to 7. No, it doesn't work like that. Anyhow, uh, keep in mind that these raises would still keep us, and this is key, within the realm of historically low rates. Okay? 
so further, the market often moves positively when it has a clearer picture of the future, which the Fed no doubt provided. End quote. So, yeah, clarity is helpful. Now, uh, the Fed maintained its view that the long-term, well, long-run average employment is 4%. In the 80s, we were told that uh, employment nationally would never, ever go below 5%. So, anyway, uh, it did. But uh, beyond that, they say that uh, they're maintaining it, that the average rate is 4%, and they're saying that the job market will hit that next spring. Now, it looks like the Fed's going to ramp up its tapering bonds. And again, that is to say they're going to reduce the purchases, as I described. But and, and the banks are hoping for higher interest rates. Why? Well, because it lets them charge more on loans and increases their bottom line. However, please do not assume that your deposit rates will budge. Let's just call that highly unlikely. The banks aren't known to move those too fast. So what's that mean for all of us? It means that the Fed's playing catch-up. Not like mustard, but catch-up. So... I wouldn't be surprised if the Fed may need to actually pick up its rate hike plans. The futures market is telling us that there's a chance could, excuse me, that the Fed could raise rates early as March next year. And I don't think that's out of line. Net Neo, as I mentioned earlier, the, the shift toward higher rates has caused investors to rotate towards these more stable value type stocks. And the trend's going stronger every week. The low-vol stocks are beating up the high-beta stocks. They're kind of getting their revenge, and uh, they're not going to let up. You know, I'm, I'm of the very strong belief that our supply chain issues will ultimately prove temporary. What isn't temporary, however, is this huge increase in the M2 money supply. Again, M2 basically means all the money that's in circulation in our economy. That money supply is now 39% above the pre-bug levels, and that was what would drive inflation going forward. So, in November, we know headline inflation increased. Now, the Fed puts a lot of blame on the supply chain crisis. In other words, the Fed says it's not the fault of the Fed. Well, Dr. Milton Friedman, the uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist, uh, had this quote that might apply, and here's what he said. Central bankers always try to avoid their last big mistake. Every time there's a threat of contraction in the economy, they'll overstimulate the economy by printing too much money. The result will be a rising roller coaster of inflation with each high and low being higher than the preceding one, unquote. Well, there's a good reason I'm not too worried about supply issues, and it's real simple. As long as there's money to be made, someone's going to come along and fix it. It just takes time. I'm really more worried about consumers becoming just acclimated, used to higher prices, because once that mentality settles in, it's hard to shake it loose, you know, uh, because remember, inflation is really a function of your own situation. It, it, what do you pay for fuel, for cars, food, apparel, medical care? Not everybody's the same. It varies quite a lot. And as a result of that, your personal inflation could be higher or lower than what uh, the rest of the country is actually dealing with. You know, I just am concerned that folks just say, ah, oh, inflation's going up, nah, that's okay. You know, <laughs> you start accepting it, it becomes part of the deal, and, uh, you know, you don't um, accept what you need to do to kind of keep it under control, because here, over the past year, as we've heard, consumer prices have increased by 6.8%.
Now, here's what that means if you've got a million dollar portfolio. And before you start dropping your teeth, there's a whole lot of folks that have those kinds of portfolios, especially in their retirement plans. Well, especially if they're of an age, shall we say. <laughs> I like to think of it as close to fully grown. In any word. So, uh, that means if you have a million dollar portfolio at 6.8%, inflation is effectively eating up $68,800 every year. Now, that's the highest year-over-year -year rate of inflation since June of 82. Now, that's really out of context because June of 82 was when uh, the bad inflation that uh, Mr. Volcker did to get, excuse me, the bad interest rates that Mr. Volcker did to get inflation under control kind of peaked around that period of time. So, if, well, put it another way. If you, if you had a $100,000 portfolio, that's $6,800 in lost buying power. You don't come out ahead no matter how much money it is. See, the challenge with the inflation is your printed balance, your printed balances, your statement balances, you don't see any change from inflation. The numbers are the same. You know, that's why folks think, well, I'm, I'm doing okay, you know, and I don't see any change in my principal, the money I put in there. But in fact, it's being eroded by, uh, like, <clears throat> excuse me, this uh, water that's coming in and uh, eroding the sand under your beach house. You know, before long, your house is the beach, and that's not what you want to do. Um, you know, that's one reason why it's called the hidden tax. It doesn't show anywhere. And, and so you have to be very careful about this in terms of your planning. Uh, by the way, if you want the gory details on inflation, you can do this. Go to the BLS, Bravo Lima Sierra, Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's bls.gov. And you can find out the breakdown, food, shelter, clothing, health care, rec, whatever. You've got the consumer price index for urban wage earners and clerical workers. That's the CPI-W. And then you've got the consumer price index for all urban consumers, which is CPI-U. The dash U is a more general index. It tracks retail prices as they affect all urban consumers. Now, I don't know where urban is, but they say it encompasses 87% of the U.S. population. So I guess that's pretty much everybody. Uh, the CPIW is more specialized and tracks retail prices as they tend to affect urban hourly wage earners and clerical workers. So if you want to find out all the gory details and really get off on those kinds of numbers, bls.gov, and you'll have more fun than you can deal with. So, you know... Uh, inflation has an unusual effect on businesses and in turn on stocks. Not all earnings are the same. Now, what I mean is, if, you know, if, if you earn $10, $10 is $10. But earnings and where they come from and how they're derived uh, are different with each industry. And, and so inflation will uh, extract a heavy toll on what are considered asset-heavy businesses. Companies with high assets relative to their profits, tend to report what they are uh, call artificial earnings. They're not fake, but they're, you know, <laughs> they're, they're subject to change, shall we say. Now, historically, his stocks have not performed well during periods of high inflation. Now, those of us who are present during the 70s certainly remember that. And during the entire decade of the 70s, the Dow gained a grand total of, you know, this is kind of like the Apple story, the Dow gained a grand total of 38 points. And most of that came at the end as we were moving into the 80s. But 
as we've seen, the markets have done somewhat better since that period of time. See, the market truly loves low, consistent inflation. In other words, pretty much what we've had over the last 30 years is uh, minus, say, 12 months. The threat for stocks long-term is really a threat from bonds. Now, inflation doesn't affect the stock market directly. Inflation basically wrecks the bond market by making yields go higher because people need a better rate of return to justify the risk that they perceive. And that's what throws sand in the gears of the stock market. The higher bond yields are really the greater competition for stocks. Now, what is a higher bond yield? Again, the uh, 10 year, excuse me, the 30 year is at 1.82%, 30 year U.S. Treasury. And that's what everything is based off is the U.S. Treasury. So, you know, when you see something, uh, say in the 10 year from 4%, maybe 5 then we're starting to get competition. But until and unless, well, until that happens, I don't see bonds as being much competition for stocks. Now, uh, kind of segueing from that, a survey from Allianz Life Insurance Company of North America finds that 25% of us see rising inflation as the single greatest risk to their retirement plan. Now, color me not surprised simply because our friendly financial media folks, that's all they know how to spell now is inflation. So that's all you're hearing about. Uh, but what I find interesting is that Allianz's survey from 2020 you know, asking, you know, what's your single greatest risk to your retirement plan? Uh, they said that in 2020, higher prices were a risk to their retirements. So wait a minute. How is inflation different than higher prices? Not sure, but that was how people answered. In any case, you know, while ev everybody's seeing higher prices for food and heating, um, according to Kelly Levine, who's president, excuse me, vice president of Consumer Insights at Allianz, he said that the problem's more profound for people who are already in retirement. And I, that's a fair statement. He said, even if inflation stays at a stable seven, excuse me, three percent, your cost of living would double over 24 years. He said, at five percent inflation, it only takes 14 and a half years for your inflation to double. You say only 24 years, only 14 and a half. Well, think about it, folks. Your retirements are going to more often than not, be in that range very easily. So that's why you have to kind of plan for that and head yourself off at the pass so you don't wind up not having enough money because you are too conservative in your investment process. So, it, 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 Treasury, now this is according to Bloomberg, Treasury investors are losing more money than they have in four decades. Once you let's talk about real returns, once you factor in inflation and if the markets are right, they're unlikely to come out ahead for years. Now, over the past decade, again, we're talking 10 years, Bloomberg's U.S. Treasury index had gained only 2.3 percent a year. That and that's uh, barely beat the consumer price index, excuse me, consumer price increases when we had basically no inflation. Now, with interest rates going up, what do you think the chances of those issues keeping up are? Uh, not even slim, just none. Now, Bank America did a monthly fund manager survey. This is uh, professional fund managers. And uh, this, this reality is not sinking in, apparently. 
because investors' cash allocation increased by 14% from November to a net 36% overweight. That's the highest cash exposure since May of 2020. Now, you remember May of 2020 when the world was totally confused for a while, but it, <laughs> that's cash. I mean, just it's not doing anything. It's like it's like putting it into a smoldering fire and expecting it to catch to flame up. All it does is sit there and just kind of throw up very little heat, like it's science at 2.3%. That's not enough to keep you warm. Now, investments in the Fed's debt, federal government debt, have already lost about 2% over the past year as the Fed has started removing stimulus from the economy and is actually going to be raising the rates. But on top of that, as we know, the consumer price index has risen, so that puts you into a deeper hole. And, and the, oh gosh, <laughs> I don't want to get into this because I'm running out of time, dang it. Um, but it, it taken together, this translates to the worst real returns, that's adjusted for inflation, since the early 80s, as we were just saying. And what's more, this is not expected to change. The bond market is projecting that 10-year treasuries will hold below the inflation rate for the next 10 years, meaning that any investment income will be more than wiped out by the rising cost of living. The worst real returns since the early 80s, that's what we're dealing with right now because of inflation and because of the way interest rates are going relative to what you're earning on fixed income from, well, pretty much anybody. Uh, and the 10-year Treasury yields are projected to be below the inflation rate for the next 10 years. That's not a real good place to put a lot of money. Now, why they have stayed so low? Everybody's got an opinion, right? Some say it's due to the flood of stimulus checks and rising household savings. Uh, others, uh, it's a pessimistic view of the economy, saying investors see the growth potential continuing to slip. Let me just throw a number out here just for grins, uh, for people that are hesitant to be in the market in general. Now, overall, all sessions of the market, this is kind of how it works. Each day, you've got about a 55% chance of the market being up. Each year you have a ch about a 65% chance of being up. 10 years, 73%, 75% chance of being up. I'd say those are pretty good odds. So the bottom line is, don't get all hinky, and when the, when, uh, the uh, headlines aren't exactly what you want, don't be looking for the door. Just make sure you've got quality in there. You'll, you'll live to see the other side. Now, uh, let's see here. The um, Francis Scotland, you know Francis, he's director for global macro research at Brandyline Global. He says that the phenomenon may exist for a long time because of this fundamental disequilibrium. Now that's a $10 word. Uh, between savings and investment and or spending and saving. You know, the combination of low yields, high inflation is taking a toll on bond buyers and and. For instance, I mean, this is real numbers. At the, at the start of the year, our inflation was 1.4%. The one-year Treasury was giving us a whole 1%, and the third year was at 1.7%. Well, it, now we've got inflation at 6.8%, and 
the 10 year at 1.4 and the 30 at 1.8. Uh, that's not a winning combination. And let me stress, while it is very important to have a liquidity strategy in place, in other words, 6 to 12 months um, in a rainy day fund for emergencies, well, yeah, baby, you got to do that. But it's all equally important to make sure you're not over-allocated to cash and bonds and those kinds of things. It's like that smoldering fire, you know, it, a dollar today won't be as worth as much tomorrow, regardless of whatever the inflation rate is. And I think it's natural for people to be worried about uncertainty in the market. But there's always uncertainty in the market. You know, one of my favorite phrases, the certainty of uncertainty. I mean, that's for sure where we are. Now, let me see. Uh, time check. Okay. I'm going to hit you with a few economic reports that came out this week, which were all pretty good. And again, the fundamentals are still quite strong. The price action has to do with tax loss selling, it has to do with program trading, it has to do with this rotation we've talked about. None of that is fundamental. All of it is price-oriented. Sorry for the aside. Anyway, uh, initial filings for unemployment uh, last week uh, totaled 206,000 folks, but the four-week moving average um, is at the lowest level since November 15, 1969. So uh, I'd say that's, it. <laughs> I don't think we had as many people in the country as they did have working at that time. Uh, so, yeah, it's a nice number, but it doesn't mean a lot. Now, these, uh, these are a proxy for layoffs. It, and again, lowest level in 52 years. They've been steadily declining the jobless claims throughout the year. And uh, wholesale prices, that's uh, the producer price index. Uh, it increased 9.6% over the previous year. Now, see, the wholesale numbers are important because higher inflation hits this sector first. That's the manufacturers, the producers of stuff, before it comes to us. Now, uh, those folks try to keep prices, uh, you know, as stable as possible for consumers, but <laughs> they're getting hit too, so uh, that's why you're seeing prices go up. Um Crude demand has been rising, continues to rise. Uh, products supplied by refineries, which is a proxy for demand, jumped last week to 23 million barrels a day. That's a healthy economic backdrop. Now, here's where you got to really not pay attention to headlines. My buddies at CNBC this week, I'm not sure what day it was, but anyhow, the headline said retail sales for November came in worse than expected, rising three-tenths of a percent month over month. Okay, so let's exam let's go behind the headlines, if you will. Now it does look like consumers pulled forward some of the Christmas shopping into October because everybody was, uh, you know, worried about shortages. Um, but only eight of the thirteen major categories were up in November, and the leaders—food and beverage, gas station, restaurants, and bars—have little to do with overall Christmas shopping. Still, contrary to the CNBC's moaning, overall sales are up nicely. They're up 18% from a year ago. Now, why that isn't good, I don't know. But, you know, the CNBC's they, they're, and their ilk are always willing to give you the bad side without telling you anything about the good side. That's why we're around. Another way to look at it, sales are up about 22% versus February 2020 even with lockdowns and other 
economy-killing political moves. Now let's jump to home building. That's been good too. It moved to an eight-month high in November due to, of course, the ongoing acute shortage of properties on the market. Even though higher prices for raw materials and labor remain a constant, the National Association of Home Builders said uh, they showed confidence in the single-family home builders rose for the fourth month. In even with their input costs rising 25% in the 12 months through November, there's still a huge backlog for houses authorized for construction, which is to say permitted, but not yet started. Now, if you've been a homeowner for more than a few years, you've, you've basically experienced deflation in your housing costs. That's because housing costs are up, your home equity is, if you'll pardon the term, through the roof, and mortgage rates have fallen in, well, I'm sure a lot of folks have taken advantage, but nonetheless, they have fallen. So rising inflation, therefore, makes your fixed monthly payment relatively lower over time. Now, what if you're a renter? Well, you know, they had all those freezes on rents for the last so long. Well, welcome to the market where you have catch-up. And after a brief dip at the onset, they are playing catch-up because they tend to track housing prices. Okay, Higher prices will likely continue. Rents tend to lag housing price movements, but they do follow up. Now, Zillow says rental costs for new tenants are up almost 13% uh, in the year ending in November. Uh, Apartmentlist.com says they've gone up 17% over that period. And typically, rents go up by only 3 to 4%. So, uh, once again, the market, you know, let it settle out. But be prepared. You're going to see definitely near-term higher uh, rates than what we have. Now, Bloomberg says... This is kind of looking forward. The economy is on track for a strong finish to this year and a solid start to next as consumers and businesses keep spending despite high inflation, staffing challenges, persistent lockdowns, and lingering supply constraints. So that's the good news. The economy will expand at an annualized 6% in the fourth quarter. And uh, our friends at First Trust are suggesting that a year from now, the... Uh, S&P will be at 52.50, and they have a whole mathematically-based formula to come up with this. That would be up 13% from yesterday, and they expect the Dow to go to 40,000, which is also up 10, 13%. So, and they expect the 10-year to finish next year at 2%. Um, so, bottom line, stocks have further to run. And as Ed Yardini, president of Yardini Research, Research said, our long booming stock market has been the quote most hated and feared bull market that any of us have experienced maybe in history unquote and he says that could be one of the reasons it keeps going higher welcome to the wall of worry thank you very much for listening again we won't be here next week so have a very merry christmas and we look forward to talking with you then this is mike mail i'm with the spokane office of the opus 111 group and you've been listening to Money Management.